It's a great joy to be back in the book of Genesis, the book of beginnings this morning. By way of reminder, Moses is the author of this book. He wrote the book of Genesis under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit during the 15th century BC. Sometime after the Exodus, which occurred in 1445 BC, but of course before his death, which was in 1405 BC. Genesis traces the lineage of mankind from Adam and Eve through to the patriarchs of Israel. And within its pages, God unveils the grand tapestry of his sovereign plan for humanity. He reveals himself to his people, initially Israel, but by extension to all those who place their faith in Christ. The book can be divided into two sections. Chapters 1 through 11 present God, the sovereign creator of Adam and Eve, who created them to have an eternal relationship with him. But although man was created perfect, he sinned in the garden and introduced sin into the world. And yet in the midst of this brokenness, God's mercy shines through his promise of a coming redeemer foretelling of one who will be born of a woman who will restore creation to his intended purpose. In Genesis 1 through 11, there's a constant tension between the progress of God's blessing and then the threat to that blessing. In Genesis 3 verse 15, God promised that he would send a seed of the woman, a savior who will redeem humanity and lift the curse from the ground. Throughout Genesis, this theme of redemption unfolds. However, this plan is faced with much opposition. As Satan wages war to corrupt and destroy and hinder the arrival of this promised Savior. We'll look at some of this today. Thus, alongside this theme of redemption is this theme of God's judgment. His just judgment a reminder of his sovereignty over all of creation. Genesis 1 through 11 describes really the primitive history divided into four key events, creation, fall, flood, and nations. Creation, Genesis 1 and 2. The fall, Genesis 3 through 5. The flood, Genesis 6 through 9. And then the spreading of the nations, Genesis 11. Genesis 12 through 50 describe the patriarchal history and is divided into four key characters. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Abraham, Genesis 12 through 24. Isaac, Genesis 25 and 26. Jacob, Genesis 27 through 36. And then Joseph, Genesis 37 through 50, with Judah being a main character in that narrative as well. Now, we've already covered the first two major events in Genesis, creation and the fall. Today, we begin the third major event being the flood. Previously, in Genesis 5, we saw the genealogy of Adam, and Adam's genealogy ended with the birth of Noah. And the repeated phrase throughout chapter 5 is, and he died. And he died, a reminder of the consequences of sin, the result of the fall. 
But amidst the darkness of sin and judgment, a ray of hope emerges in the person of Noah. His name means both rest and comfort. You'll be reminded that Lamech foretells of a future divine reprieval amidst the toilsome labor and the curse that is upon the ground. He said, we see in verse 29, now he called his name, Noah called, Lamech called his name Noah, saying, this one will give us rest from our work and from the pain of our hands arising from the ground which Yahweh has cursed. Lamech was foretelling of this deliverance that would come through Noah, really in part. Through Noah, we witness God's grace. We see God's favor, his chen, a beacon of hope amidst the, the, the wickedness that just seems to be spreading like wildfire. Amidst the rampant sin and corruption, there's a glimmer of hope represented by Noah, who is singled out as a righteous survivor amid the impending flood. And as we turn our attention to Genesis 6, verses 1 through 8, you'll notice many of the same themes that we've seen in the previous five chapters being brought together in these eight verses. We see the exponential growth of the human population. We see the futility of human ambition, the prevalence of violence and sin, the hope for redemption through God's chosen deliverer, in this case Noah, who traces his line back to Adam through Seth, righteous Seth. So with that background in mind, let's read Genesis chapter 6. Verses 1 through 8. Now it happened when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good in appearance. And they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever, because he indeed is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret I have made them, that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. So reads God's inspired, inerrant, and absolutely authoritative word. In Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 through 8, Moses portrays a pivotal moment in human history where righteous Noah stands as a beacon of hope amidst the overwhelming depravity 
and divine judgment. This this passage challenges us to find comfort and assurance in God and His promises, even in the midst of the chaos that we witness all around us, the seemingly increase of depravity. After detailing the human degradation in verses 1 through 4, Moses then presents two divine responses to human depravity. The first response is divine judgment, which we see in verses 5 through 7, destruction. And the second response is deliverance, which we see in verse 8. We'll begin with the depraved degradation, verses 1 through 4. Depraved degradation. And so I'll once again read verses 1 through 4 as we see this spiraling down into utter wickedness. Now it happened when men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good in appearance and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever because he indeed is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward, when the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them. Those were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. This passage reveals the reason for God's judgment through the flood. It was the increasing moral corruption as highlighted in verse 5. And I want you to notice the connection between verse 1 and verse 5. In verse 1, we read about the increase of mankind. The human population was increasing. Whilst in verse 5, we see the increase in the depth of human wickedness. Sin was increasing. The involvement of the sons of God and the presence of the Nephilim they closely connected to this depraved degradation of man. The question then is, who are these sons of God? The Apostles' Creed says in part that Jesus suffered at the hands of Pontius Pilate. He was crucified, he died, and was buried, and he descended to hell. What? Now, as you know, hell is a place where sinners are damned, where sinners suffer the judgment of God. And so if Jesus is sinless, why would he descend to hell? Did he go there to suffer for our sins? And if so, why did he die on the cross? So I want you to get your fingers warmed up because we're going to study the scriptures to answer this question. And as we find the answer to this question in the process, we will likewise find the answer to the question Who are these sons of God in Genesis 6? So begin by turning to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3, we'll be reading verses 18 through 20. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 through 20 reads, For Christ also suffered for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, 
so that he might bring you to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah, during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Verse 18 speaks of Jesus, his substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. Jesus the righteous died for the unrighteous. And the purpose of Jesus' substitutionary death is to bring us to God. That is to rescue us from the wrath to come. It required at the end of verse 18, states that Jesus being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Yes, Jesus died physically, but spiritually he remained alive. Just like our spirit doesn't die when we die physically. The spirits of believers who die immediately go to be with the Lord, whilst their body returns to dust from which we were created. At the resurrection, of course, that's when our spirits and our new bodies will be once again reunited, a body fit for eternity with God in heaven. When Peter writes at the end of verse 18 that he was put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit, he's speaking of Jesus' physical death and that moment where his body and his spirit were separated. Jesus was separated from his body for three days before being reunited on the third day at his glorious resurrection when he rose with a resurrected body, a glorious body, an eternal body. Verse 19 continues the thought of verse 18, which contains really the rest of the sentence. Verse 19 tells us what happened in that short period of time when Jesus was lying buried in the grave, that period of time when he was separated from his body. Verse 19 reads, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison. And the word proclamation is really the word to preach, to proclaim. He is giving his victory speech. The victory of how he conquered sin, how he conquered death, how he conquered the devil through his dying on the cross. As verse 18 in the preceding context tells us. But who was the audience? Who is he proclaiming this victory message to? Well, the text tells us at the end of verse 19, to the spirits now in prison. Now, you might be asking, what imprisoned spirits are being referred to? And where is this prison located? We're going to answer that with some other scriptures, but let's first finish 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. The spirits being referred to in verse 19 are demons as they are described as being in prison. Demons are really disobedient, fallen angels, spirit beings. And 1 Peter 3.20 gives us a a few more clues to really solve this mystery of these imprisoned spirits. Verse 20 says, these spirits are the ones who were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So verse 20, firstly, tells us that the spirits in prison were disobedient spirits, 
when the patience of God was waiting, when he no longer wanted to strive with men in their wickedness in the days of Noah. The spirits or demons who sinned, they did so in the days of Noah preceding the flood whilst the ark was being constructed. And the ark took 120 years to be constructed. Noah, a preacher of righteousness, proclaimed the gospel, repent, for 120 years, and yet only eight people were saved. 120 years doesn't reference the longevity of man's life after the flood. People lived much longer than that even. It referenced the period that the ark was constructed, the period of grace, of patience, how God would continue to put up with man and his sinfulness that he might repent genesis 6 verse 5 gives us the reason why god sent the flood to the earth then yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his thoughts of his heart was evil continually it was the period during the flood it was it was this period before the flood that these spirits these demons sinned So this identifies to some degree the the group to whom Jesus proclaimed this message of victory, victory over death, victory over sin, victory over the devil. Peter describes these same disobedient spirits who lived in the days of Noah in his second letter. And so turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2 verses 4 through 9. The theme of Second Peter is on, really, false teachers. And he gives a profile of a false teacher, and he compares the destiny of a false teacher to these angels who were cast into prison during the times of Noah. Peter, again, makes reference to the time when these demons sinned and were incarcerated, alluding to Noah again in Second Peter 2, verses 4 and 5, just like he did in First Peter 3, Verse 20. And so Second Peter 2, verse 4 and 5 says, For if God did not spare if for if God did not spare angels who sinned, but cast them into the pit and delivered them to chains of darkness, being kept for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness, with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. At this point, our first question is answered. Peter says that Jesus went to hell to make a victory proclamation to the fallen angels, the demons, the spirits who incarcerated in hell. But let's keep going. Continuing in 2 Peter, Peter then gives another example of sure judgment, the sure judgment of God that will fall upon false teachers. And he likens this judgment to the same judgment that fell upon the wicked cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. He says in verses 6 through 8, And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to those who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, for by what he saw and heard that righteous man, while living among them, felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. And notice the parallel. God brought judgment upon the ancient world of Noah, but spared a few, Noah and his family, who entered the ark. 
Peter gives another illustration. God brought judgment upon Sodom and Gomorrah, but spared a few, Lot and his daughters. And he tells us that Lot was oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, verse 7. Sodom, Gomorrah, and the ancient cities of the plain, like the ancient world of Noah, was saturated by wickedness, immorality, and even homosexuality. This is what Peter's referring to as the sensual conduct of unprincipled men. And if you go and read Genesis 18 and 19, you will discover that the men of Sodom wanted to have sexual relations, homosexual relations, with Lot's visitors, who were angels, thinking that they were men. Please turn to Jude, just before Revelation, Jude. What does Jude 6 and 7 tell us about these angels in prison? The theme of the book of Jude is the same as the second letter of Peter. It's false teachers. Jude says many of the same things that we read about in second Peter. However, the verb tenses are different. The verb tenses in second Peter are really predictions. Peter is predicting the coming of false teachers, whereas Jude, the verb tenses in Jude, these are the false teachers that Jude is currently dealing with. What Peter predicted, Jude is experiencing. Jude also speaks of the same disobedient spirits in Jude 6 and 7. And he explains why the sin of these angels was so terrible. Why it led to their incarceration until the great day of judgment. He says in verse 6 and 7, And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day, just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these in gross sexual immorality, and having gone after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in un under undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Jude tells us that the angels who sinned in the days of Noah, they didn't keep their proper domain. They abandoned their proper uh, abode. Angels live in a spiritual realm with God. But we know that they can appear before men if God permits them, commands them to do so. And we also know that when they do appear before men, they often look like and act like men. In fact, they're often described, I mean, even in Genesis 18 and 19, they described they describe men and angels in the same context, almost without distinction. We know from Hebrews 13 verse 2 that some of us may even entertain angels without knowing it. Yet it's not God's will for angels to appear before mankind, except in rare instances when he commands them to do so. The spirits in prison that Jesus preached to, they had left their spiritual realm. They had appeared to mankind. Jews says that they abandoned their proper abode, which indicates more than just a mere one-time one appearance. They came to live amongst men. They forsook their spiritual realm to live among humanity. Jude 6 continues, that as a consequence of abandoning their proper domain, 
These disobedient angels are now being kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. This was very wicked. This is the same place that Peter describes in 1 Peter 3, 19 as prison, or as he describes in 2 Peter 2, verse 4 as hell or the pit of darkness reserved for judgment. This is where Jesus went to make his victory proclamation speech after dying on the cross, but before his resurrection on the third day. And then Jude says something very insightful in Jude 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, having indulged in the same way as these, in gross sexual immorality and having gone after strange flesh. Here we learn more about the nature of their sin. These disobedient spirits, these fallen angels, these demons, their sin was like the sin of Sodom and Gomorrah. Cities that were rife with all kinds of sexual immorality such as homosexuality and the like. Jude says that these demons committed sins in the same way as these. And the root word there in verse 7, translated gross sexual immorality, it's the normal word for immorality with the prefix added to really amplify its meaning. And the idea of the, the lives of those in Sodom and Gomorrah, they were totally given over to sexual immorality of every kind. Which, of course, as we know from Romans 1, that in, that in and of itself is the judgment of God. The demons, in just the same way as these, sinned, committing acts of gross sexual immorality. There is a kind of sexual perversion which is worse than fornication. There's a kind of sexual perversion which is worse than adultery or homosexuality. And that is bestiality. For then you have sexual acts outside of humankind. And Jude here is describing the sins of these fallen angels on a similar measure. Outside of humankind. Men lusting in sexual passions after both men and angels. Jude says that the angels in prison sinned in the same way as these. Same way as the, the wicked men of Sodom and Gomorrah. A sexual perversion of the greatest kind, men with angels, two different kinds, as with the sin of bestiality. This is why Jude describes it as gross sexual immorality. Now keep that in mind as Jude is speaking of a sin which led to the incarceration of these fallen angels who are in prison, to whom Jesus preached to. Fallen angels abandoning their spiritual realm, committing gross acts of sexual immorality with mankind, with strange flesh or flesh of a different kind, literally speaking. Speaking at the end of verse 7, he says that these angels, these ones who engaged in the sexual act with mankind, they exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. That's a synonym for hell. Peter describes it as a pit or utter darkness. This is where Jesus went and proclaimed his message whilst, he, whilst his body was buried in the grave. He descended into hell not to suffer, but to proclaim victory over sin and death to the fallen angels who since the day of Noah had been incarcerated for leaving their proper abode, their spiritual domain to live with 
and commit gross sexual immorality with mankind. So let's turn our attention then back to Genesis chapter 6. As we saw, Peter is referring to something that he knows about the days of Noah. Genesis is really the only inspired record of that time period. So unless the Holy Spirit revealed to Peter some historical information that has never been mentioned in the Bible, which is possible but unlikely, we should conclude that Peter received that revelation from Genesis, talking about this pre-flood period, what resulted in the flood, what was the reason for the flood. And as we see in verses 1 through 4, that's exactly what has happened. Genesis 1 and 2, Now it happened when men began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were good in appearance, and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Verse 4, The Nephilim were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, When the sons of God came into the daughters of men, and they bore children to them, those were the mighty men who were of old, known as the men of renown. As we see in verse 2, these sons of God, these fallen angels, demons, taking the daughters of men, seeing their parents as good, taking them as their own wives, whomever they chose. Genesis 6, 1 through 4, is really, it really explains why, verse 5, the evil of man was great on the earth and that every intent of his thoughts, of his heart, were only evil continually. This is the reason why God sent the flood upon the earth to destroy the earth and everyone on the earth. The reason why things got so bad is because of the sons of God who took the daughters of men as their wives. The phrase sons of God is also a reference to, to angels in the book of Job. Job 1 verse 6, Job 2 verse 1, Job 38 verse 7. Although in Genesis 6 they are fallen angels demons. This is, this is what fits well with what Peter explains in both his letters, what Jude explains, that these spirits sinned, these angels were disobedient in the days of Noah, abandoning their proper abode, engaging in gross sexual immorality, similar to the wicked men of Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 2 is telling us that angels cohabited with the daughters of men. Verse 3 says that Yahweh said, My spirit shall not strive with man forever. And do you remember what Peter said when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah? God's spirit was striving with the wickedness of men, which was amplified by the wickedness of these demons. Now some may object to this interpretation, saying that angels neither marry nor are given in marriage. Matthew 22 verse 30. And I'd say, yes, you're absolutely right. Holy angels in heaven neither marry nor are given in marriage. But that doesn't mean that they, can't, that they can't. Jude makes it very clear that they can, and they did. They went after strange flesh, flesh of another kind, human flesh. And as we see in verse 4, the result of these sons of God cohabiting with women was not only that it tried the patience of God, but verse 4 reads that the Nephilim were born to them. 
When the sons of God came in to the daughters of men, they brought children to them, those who were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Satan had tried to corrupt the human race so that mankind, just like fallen angels, would become unredeemable. For mankind to be redeemed, we need a perfect, fully human to die in our place as our substitute, which is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. He is perfectly God and fully man, and he died to save man, full men. However, if you have even a speck of demon DNA within your body, you become unredeemable. You fall under the same category of angels. Who fallen angels, there is no salvation for them. The result was not only a great perversion of God's intention for sexual relations within the bounds of marriage between a husband and a wife, but also the perversion of sexual relations by two different kinds. The result was these mighty men were born, men of old, men of renown. And this aberration, God had to destroy. As we bring this to a close, I think you will agree that based upon the clear testimony of Scripture, Jesus descended to hell. Why did he descend to hell? To make a victory proclamation to the demons who had abandoned their domain and had committed gross sexual immorality with a woman within, within Noah's day. Jesus proclaimed to the demons in prison that he had conquered sin, conquered death, and conquered their master, the devil. Think about it. Mankind knew that Jesus died to conquer sin and death. The holy angels knew that Jesus had died to conquer sin and death. Even the fallen angels or demons that weren't incarcerated, they knew that Jesus had died to conquer sin and death. But there was one group that didn't know. It was this group, these angels who sinned in the days of Noah, who incarcerated in the dungeon of hell, the prison within hell. Jesus wanted even them to know his victory over sin and death. This is why the church from the earliest time believed that Jesus descended into hell, just like the Apostles' Creed declares. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From there he will come to judge the living and the dead. Now, there's really two responses to human depravity, judgment or forgiveness, divine destruction or divine deliverance. And we see the first response in verses 5 through 7, divine destruction. Verses 5 through 7, divine destruction. Verse 5 through 7 reads, Then Yahweh saw that the evil of man was great on the earth, and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And Yahweh regretted that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. And Yahweh said, 
I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to birds of the sky, for I regret that I have made them. Verse 5 records the consequence of verses 1 through 4. Yahweh saw and condemned this unprecedented corruption of humanity. In Genesis 1 verse 31, you'll remember that Yahweh saw the work of His handiworks and He declared His creation very good. In Genesis 6 verse 2, we see the sons of God, these fallen angels, saw the daughters of men as good in appearance. The sons of God took what was good and they defiled it. And instead of increasing in number according to God's design within the bounds of marriage, mankind increased in wickedness through perverting God's design. And thus verse 5 accentuates the decadence of this period. The evil of man was great. Every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Every intent continually. Notice two things about sin in verse 5. Firstly, sin is portrayed as internal, affecting our very thoughts, the thoughts of our heart, rather than merely just our outward actions. We typically judge by appearance, but God judges the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Secondly, we see, we see that sin is pervasive. It is internal, but it is also pervasive, corrupting every aspect of human existence. Even our noblest endeavors are tainted by, this, by sin's pervasive influence. Much like pure water is contaminated in, in a contaminated vessel. The sin of Noah's generation was so severe that the only proper response was severe judgment, blotting out, destroying, removing the leaven from the lump, purifying. And the recurring phrase that we see in these three verses, on the earth, it, 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 it anticipates this necessary purging of this now polluted land, a purging that will come through the great flood. Before the flood, man plotted evil within, within his heart. God's response, verse 6, was that he was grieved in his heart. And while this verse portrays the reaction to human depravity, it also foreshadows his relief when he looks upon righteous Noah. Lamech's hope for his son is that he would be the deliverer. He would deliver us from the toils of hard labor, lifting the curse off the ground. Now, of course, this was only realized in part through Noah's survival of the flood and the inauguration of this new world, but it would be accomplished in full by the seed of the woman, the promised Messiah who was yet to come. God's anguish, him being grieved in heart, is akin to Jesus weeping over Jerusalem demonstrating the severity of human depravity and the absolute need for a savior. In verse 7, God's second speech marks a significant shift in his response to human life. 
explicitly stating his resolve to really undo his earlier creative works. He's going to undo his work of creation. God declares his intent to blot out his handiwork, which is a stark contrast to his declaration at the end of chapter 1. Very good. Despite this judgment, God promises to deliver a remnant and ultimately relieve creation's plight. But here we see the consequences of human moral decline, and that is God's just judgment. Just as God responded to the widespread wickedness in Noah's day by divine destruction, you and I likewise must understand, we must see the seriousness of sin. Sin in our own lives, sin in the world around us. Sin corrupts every aspect of the human's existence, affecting not only our outward actions, but our inner thoughts and intentions of our hearts. We are so apt to look down upon those that commit public sin, sins of adultery and fornication and theft, lying, forgetting that God looks into our heart. And when God looks into your heart, what does he see? Envy? Jealousy? Unforgiveness? Discontentment? Anxiety? Pride? All of which are an affront to a holy God. The justice of God demands that the wicked be blotted out. But just when the storm clouds of divine wrath seem the darkest, a glimmer of hope emerges. Grace emerges. It breaks through. A promise of a new dawn. Noah found grace. This leads us to our final point, which is the second divine response to human depravity. The first response is God's just judgment. The second is His undeserved grace. His forgiveness upon sinners like you and I. Divine deliverance is the third point, which we read in verse 8. Divine deliverance. Strong contrast. But, but Noah found favor in the eyes of Yahweh. In verse 8, Yahweh's anguish is alleviated when he turns his attention to Noah who found favor in his eyes. The word but, it distinguishes Noah from the rest of those within his generation. He's set apart. The term grace or favor, chain, is, is the word. It's, it's a play on Noah's name. Amid humanity's peak depravity, it signifies that as long as life endures, even in the midst of extreme evil and I'd argue that the wickedness that we see around us is no different to the wickedness that occurred before the flood. In the midst of this extreme evil, God's grace is still accessible in and through the person and finished work of Jesus Christ. Although Noah may not have comprehended the details of Christ's future work, he anticipated God's promised deliverer, his redeemer, and he orientated his life accordingly. He lived by faith, and he was regarded as a righteous man. 
Notably, Noah didn't deserve divine grace. He found it. He acknowledged his sinful nature, he accepted God's judgment, and he placed his faith in God's coming Savior. Likewise, you and I are not entitled to God's grace. We don't deserve it. We can't earn it. We can't buy it. We receive it by faith. All we deserve is God's righteous wrath. Yet like Noah, we can discover God's grace in Christ. God's sorrow over humanity's sin finds relief in Noah's righteousness. And so likewise, God's promise of a coming deliverer, the promised seed of the woman, has been uncorrupted, preserved, who is still yet to come. And as God preserved Noah and his family through the flood, he extends salvation to all who believe in Jesus Christ. And if you have not embraced the gospel of grace, Today is the day of salvation. Remember that salvation is found in no one else but in Jesus Christ, who alone is the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him, Him alone. Saints of Livingstone, as we witness the judgment of God and the wicked and anticipate His impending judgment, not judgment by water but judgment by fire, let us boldly proclaim the gospel to the lost around us. Share the hope and the grace that can be found in Christ. Share that with others, that they too might find favor in the eyes of Yahweh, that they too might have the joy of salvation in Jesus Christ. Share the gospel. And considering Noah's righteousness, which provided relief, for God in his sorrow over humanity's sin, may I exhort you to likewise flee sin, flee wickedness in your thoughts, in your words, in your actions. Flee it and pursue after righteousness. That is what is pleasing before the Lord. Gather together with fellow believers that you might confess your sins to them, a small group, same gender. Be transparent. Be honest with your sin struggles. Pray for one another. Pray with one another. Hold each other accountable. And so sharpen each other, spurring one another on toward love and good works. Seek to honor God in every aspect of your life and let your conduct serve as a powerful testimony of God's transformative grace and mighty power. Let's come before Him in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the privilege that we have once again to look into the pages of your word, to resume our study of the book of Genesis. Lord, we see in Genesis chapter 6 that your truth shines so brightly, even in the midst of human depravity and divine judgment. Father, we acknowledge the sobering reality of the depraved degradation which we see around us. We even confess our own struggle with sin that still plagues us. Yet, Lord, in the midst of this darkness, we find comfort and rest in you. Your light still shines. Your promises remain steadfast. You are a God that saves, a God that forgives, and a God that sanctifies. Father, help us to heed this warning. 
and to turn from our sinful ways to seek mercy and forgiveness from you. May we not take your patience for granted, but repent wholeheartedly, knowing that your judgment is righteous and just. And like Noah, may we stand as beacons of your grace and mercy in a world that so desperately needs your salvation. May we find assurance in your promises, even in the midst of the chaos and the corruption that is all around us. Grant us strength, O God, to walk faithfully in your ways, trusting in your unfailing love and your unwavering faithfulness. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.